You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. It can be dangerous to stand between someone and their next meal. Anyone who's put their hand near the food bowl while their dog is eating can attest to that. And avoiding a lion while it hunts a gazelle is just plain common sense. In 1766, though, the people of Nottingham, England weren't hunting down a gazelle. No, they had their sights on something else. And when it looked like they weren't going to get it, they made sure to let everyone know. It all started at the Nottingham Goose Fair, a traveling carnival dating back a thousand years, maybe more, that visited the area every October. Back then, instead of rides or games of chance, the Goose Fair was mainly a food festival. It began as a livestock market where animals of all kinds, including geese, were traded among fairgoers. Over time, it branched out into other kinds of food as well, but especially cheese. In fact, it became a primary reason people attended the fair but never more important than in 1766. You see, in the months leading up to the event, a poor harvest threatened Europe with a nationwide food shortage. People were scared, and the markets reacted accordingly. High demand resulted in skyrocketing prices. Flour, wheat, corn, and yes, cheese, all saw an uptick in prices, prices that were beyond what most people could afford. But when the Nottingham Goose Fair came around that year, the prices weren't the only things rising. Tempers had gotten pretty heated, too. Just one week earlier, cheese had been selling for anywhere between 14 and 22 shillings per 100 weight at Coventry Market. The following week, the Goose Fair saw prices double. By today's standards, that put the cost of cheese at nearly 200 pounds, too pricey for locals just trying to get by. Adding insult to injury, there was more cheese present at this fair than in previous years. All of it just out of reach from almost everyone in attendance. Things came to a head on October 2nd, when a group of merchants from nearby Lincolnshire traveled to Nottingham. They had come to buy hundreds of pounds of cheese, which they planned to sell in their own county. But the locals didn't take too kindly to having their cheese bought by out-of-towners, only to be sold elsewhere. They were hungry and desperate. A group of young men stopped the merchants on the road, surrounding their caravan and offering an ultimatum, either share their cheese with everyone else or get the cheddar kicked out of them. A fight broke out shortly after that, with a mob of fed-up fairgoers taking their anger out on the local shops. They broke windows and liberated hundreds of cheese wheels, rolling them into the streets and hurling them out into open spaces. The mayor of the town attempted to regain control of the crowd, but failed. A stray cheese wheel even rolled into him and knocked him down. 
Things only escalated from there, with Nottingham residents taking up arms and putting up roadblocks to keep the traders from getting away with their cheese. The mob also boarded a boat hauling cheese and seized that cargo, too. The owner of the boat offered to give them money or sell them his cheese at a lower price, but they were too angry to reason with. Another crowd attempted to raid a nearby warehouse, but they were chased out by armed workers. Still, those looters were able to run off with some of the cheese, which prompted the warehouse owner to form a posse to hunt them down. Unfortunately, they didn't get too far. While detaining several people who they believe were rioting, the posse was attacked with stones, and they were forced to retreat. The time had come to call in the reinforcements. The 15th Dragoons, a British cavalry regiment, arrived in Nottingham and opened fire into the crowd. One man, a farmer named William Eggleston, was killed in the skirmish. He hadn't been part of the riot, though. He'd just been standing near his own cheese, protecting it from looters. It took several days before the military was able to restore the peace. Despite the violence of the Nottingham Cheese Riot of 1766, the Goose Fair continues to visit to this day. Although the livestock trading of old has given way to carnival rides and games, there hasn't been a cheese-fueled mob there in over 250 years. And I'd call that news pretty Gouda. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. 
Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. World War II was a unique time in history when Americans and Europeans banded together to take down a common enemy. Not everyone took up arms, though. Many hosted scrap drives to collect metal and rubber that would go toward building ships and airplanes. Others, like actors and musicians, flew overseas to put on shows for the troops. Edda van Heemstra put on shows, too. She was born in Brussels, Belgium in 1929 to a Dutch baroness and a British businessman. Her early years were filled with turmoil, though, as her father left the family and joined a fascist organization back in England when she was just six. Though her life had just gone through a major upheaval, she always had one constant, dance. Etta was enrolled in ballet lessons at a young age, a skill that would serve her well later in life. She returned to the UK when she was seven to attend school. As she got older, Etta was swept into the chaos that was the Second World War. Her mother took her and her siblings back to her hometown in Arnhem in the Netherlands. It had been a neutral territory during World War I, and Etta's mother hoped it would remain that way throughout this new war as well. The young Etta was soon enrolled at the Arnhem Conservatory, where she focused more on her ballet lessons. Around 1940, though, the war finally reached their doorstep. The Nazis invaded the Netherlands, and the family suffered great losses. To stay safe, they went underground, quite literally. Etta survived in the basement of her home by eating tulip bulbs after their food supply was cut off by the Germans. But as she fought to go on, a movement was stirring around her. She joined the Dutch Resistance, a group of freedom fighters comprised of local churches, the Communist Party, and other groups. The Resistance had fought for days as the Germans marched into the Netherlands. They held the line at areas like The Hague, Rotterdam, and elsewhere. During the various battles, many lives were lost on both sides, and entire towns were reduced to ash. Among the rubble were properties once owned by Etta's mother. Meanwhile, Etta did her part, but not as a fighter. She became a courier, taking messages to Allied airmen who had been shot down. She also helped deliver the Resistance's underground newspaper. Now, during one of her deliveries, she ran into a group of German soldiers. She had to think quick on her feet to avoid capture, or worse, so she picked flowers for them and acted as though she didn't know what was going on. They reviewed her papers and let her go. But perhaps her greatest contribution to the resistance was her dancing. Etta danced during events called Black Evenings, concerts held in people's homes to help raise funds for the resistance. To hide their actions from the Germans, windows were covered and audiences held their applause. The money was then used to shelter Jews hiding out in the Netherlands. Etta and her mother attended their first Black Evening as guests in April of 1944, after that, the girl was hooked. She began performing in them herself while a friend of hers played the piano. 
She performed in costumes designed by her mother. Outside the homes, resistance guards kept watch for German soldiers who might have been in the area. Etta was strong, maybe even stronger than some of the people actually fighting. She was barely a teenager, running messages to Allied soldiers during the day and dancing for audiences at night. The lack of food meant that she was malnourished, and she suffered from acute anemia, among other ailments. It wasn't until her mother got the family out when things started to turn around. In 1945, after the war, the Van Heemstras moved to Amsterdam, and Etta resumed her ballet lessons. She studied under a woman named Sonia Gaskell, a prominent Dutch dancer and choreographer. Her mother was forced to work two jobs to keep food on the table, her wealth having been destroyed during the war along with her homes. Etta, meanwhile, earned a scholarship to study ballet at a British dance company called Rambert. She moved to London and supported herself by doing some modeling on the side. Sadly, her time at the ballet came to an end after a review of her dancing. Rambert told her she was too tall to ever become a prima ballerina. Van Heemstra didn't take it too hard, though. She pivoted to another passion of hers. Acting. But the odds are good that you've never heard of Etta. That's because Van Heemstra was her mother's maiden name, part of an identity she adopted during the war to avoid problems with the Germans. Her real name was Audrey Rustin. But when it came time to pick a stage name, she swapped out Rustin for the other name in her father's hyphenated surname. And with that, a star was born. Audrey Hepburn. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.